1 Kings chapter number 18 this morning. And uh, I want to preach to you for a little while on the altar, 1 Kings chapter number 18. And uh, as you find your way there, I just want to say the Lord's been good to me and uh, better than I deserve and better than I could have ever imagined. You know, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of men the things that He hath prepared for them that love And uh, I, I don't love Him like I ought to, but He loves me. And I just want to praise Him this morning. He's worthy. He's always worthy. doesn't matter how much you praise Him, He's worthy of more praise. And uh, you never have to worry about praising Him too much because He's always worthy of our praise. 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. Let's begin reading at verse number 20. The Word of God says, So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken." And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them, and said, Cry aloud. For he is a God, either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awake. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass, when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time, and they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time, and they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that Thou art God in Israel." and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Now I want you to look back with me at what the Word of God says in verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Let's pray together this morning. God, we do thank you for the privilege of being in your house. Now, Lord, we've come expecting and needing to hear from heaven. And Father, we're just trusting and depending on you. Lord, we, we have need of your presence this morning, Father. Not just the, the pomp and circumstance and the form and, and fashion of it, but God, we need you this morning. We pray, Father, that you would accomplish that which we cannot. Lord, that you would stir the hearts of all those that are present. Help us to see the great and grand need of an altar in our life, a place where we might meet with you and surrender to you and see you work in our lives. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, most of you, if you've grown up in Sunday school or if you've been in church any amount of time, then this isn't your first trip to Mount Carmel. You've been on this mountain before. You've heard Elijah pray before. You've heard of the fire falling before. But I want us to draw our focus upon the action that Elijah took in rebuilding the altar of the Lord. When we talk about an altar, and this was a stone structure, we do not know the exact dimension. Some commentators said it was about four cubits by four cubits. But it was merely a place for an offering to be given. It was a place for men to come and sacrifice something that it might be consumed before the eyes and ears of a holy God. We find that as we come to this passage, the altar was in disrepair. You know, if I could pinpoint one problem with our country this morning, we have a lot of problems in our country. It's still the greatest country on the face of the earth. I believe that. If I didn't believe that, I'd move away. Amen? I think anybody else that don't believe that, they ought to move away too. Amen? And uh, I do believe it's a wonderful country, but we have a lot of problems in our country. I think we're all aware of that. But if I could single out one problem in the country that I believe if we could fix that, it'd fix everything else, I'd say the main problem is the disrepair in the altar of the Lord. Men, women, and children are not meeting with God. They're not surrendering to the Lord. They're not bending the ear of an almighty God to our nation's needs. I think if we could just fix the altar, it'd fix a lot of things. I think if we could fix the altar, it'd fix our churches. I think if we could fix the altar, it would fix our marriages. I think if we could fix the altar, it'd fix our communities. I think it all hinges on what we do with the altar, with that meeting place that we have with God. As I began to think about this, I thought of a few types of altars that I think are in disrepair, that I think we need to attend to in our day that we live in. Now listen, if you came to hear a sermon about them, you came to the wrong place. But if you came to hear a sermon about you, you came to the right place. And as I preach this message, I'm keenly aware that it's a message about me. And I hope that it's a message about you this morning. If you just came to hear all about them, then you're going to be sorely disappointed. You see, the fixing of the altar, I think one of the altars that needs to be fixed is the devotional altar that we have in our lives. I think we need to get to a place where we're meeting with God again on a daily and personal level. I think we need to set aside a time each day where we devote ourselves to prayer and reading the Word of God and to hearing from heaven. 
Wouldn't be much of a relationship that we'd have with our spouse if we never talked to them. Some of you, that's how it is with you, amen. But uh, it wouldn't be much of a relationship that we'd have. And it's no different with our relationship with the Lord. Listen, if you're not meeting with God, how, how do you expect the Lord to work in your life? How are you going to know the will of God if you never hear from God? How, how are you going to hear what in your life needs to be corrected? I don't care who you are in this room. We all have areas of our life that we can surrender more to the Lord. How are you going to know about them if you don't hear from heaven? I think the devotional altar needs to be fixed. But then I think the family altar needs to be fixed. Let me tell you something. The altar is the centerpiece of the home. Now, if you were to come to my house, you wouldn't find a big stone structure where we all kneel and pray. But you would find, if you spent time around our family, that we do take time out of each and every day as the Lord affords us that opportunity and time to gather together and to read the Word of God and to pray. And a family will only be as strong as their altar is. Uh, if you're having family problems, look to the altar first. If you're having problems in your marriage, look to the altar first. Ask yourself, am I meeting with God? Am I finding out from the Lord what His will is for my life? Am I finding out areas, maybe even in my marriage, or maybe even with my children, or maybe even with the rest of my family, that I can surrender to the Lord? I'm telling you, this is an activity. You understand that? This isn't a passive thing. This is an active thing. You've got to make the time, you've got to set the side of the, the time, and you've got to deliberately and distinctly commit yourself to making your home a Christian home. Uh, your home is only, and listen to me, men, your home is only a Christian home in as much as you make it a Christian home. There's no such thing as a home that's just automatically a Christian home. Uh, did you know a home can be full of Christians and still not be a Christian home? It's a Christian home if it's a place where Christ is exalted. It's a Christian home if it's a place where the Word of God is taught. I think one of the great tragedies in our churches is that we look to the church and the preacher and the pastor to teach the Word of God for our homes. When the Word of God teaches, that it ought to be the husband teaching the Word of God in their home. You say, I'm in a home where I don't have a husband. He walked off or something happened and it's tragic. Well, maybe so. Then you take that responsibility, Mom. You take that responsibility. Uh, but uh, beyond anything else, make sure that you've got a family altar in your home, a place where your family meets with God. Don't wonder why there's problems if you're not meeting with God. You can't do this thing on your own. I can't do this thing on my own. We've got to have God in this business if we're going to do it right. So we see the family altar needs to be rebuilt, but I think also the church altar needs to be rebuilt. Now, when I say the church altar, I don't necessarily mean uh, the physical altar itself. We don't even really have an altar. We have steps. I guess that upsets some people, but uh, if you, you wouldn't want to jump up here, amen, right? We need steps, amen? Is everybody okay this morning? Are you all right? Do I have something on my face? That's just a beard. Don't get nervous, okay? I think the church as a collective entity and as individuals needs to get back to a place where we meet with God and we see church as a meeting place with God. Listen, if you just came here today to hear a sermon, I'm sorry, you won't hear much of one. But if you came to meet with God, I believe God will meet with you. I mean, if you just came to hear some good singing, now, we, I, I love our singing. I mean, I love our music. I love our choir. I love our specials. But I'll be honest, they ain't handing no Grammys out around this place. Amen? But if you came to worship, you can worship. I think that we need to get back to the place where we see the church house as a place where we meet with God. Not just a place where we get religiously educated, but a place where we meet with God. Religious education, that's a good thing, Right? Uh, but uh, only when we meet with God can God accomplish in our hearts what needs to be done. See, it's not just about knowing about Him, it's about knowing Him. It's about knowing Him. I think the church altar needs to be a place that's rebuilt. I, I think we as a church need to endeavor into prayer more. Uh, 
I think we need to pray deliberately about things, don't you? Don't you? Are we all right this morning? I don't know what I've done. I don't know if I'm upsetting you or, or what. I'm just saying we need to be praying more than we're praying. We need to be serving more than we're serving. We need to be working more than we're working. We need to be worshiping more than we're worshiping. We need to be doing more. Amen? We need to be doing more. I think the church altar is a thing that needs to be rebuilt. I think there's a lot of altars in our lives that needs to be rebuilt. Why is it so important? Why is it so necessary that there be an altar in our life and in our home? Well, I think in this text we find a few good indications. I would say that the the first reason that we need an altar in our home and in our life is because of the absence of rain that they were experiencing. You see, that's the main reason they built the altar. That's the main reason. Elijah knew this thing had come to a head and the land needed rain. And so a decision had to be made. Let me tell you something. The first and foremost reason that you need an altar in your life is so that you can hear from heaven. So that you can hear from heaven. So that you can experience the power of God in your life. Because let me tell you something. Power don't come without prayer. You need an altar in your life so that you can hear from heaven know how to lead your family. To know how to lead your marriage. Know how to lead your home. Know how to parent your kids. To know how to be a witness in your workplace. To know how to make decisions in your life. It's not just a suggestion. It's a requirement. I mean, it's not just a take-it-or-leave-it thing. And see, that's the problem. I think not only because of the abundance of rain, but I think because of the apathy of the people an altar was needed. Did you notice what it said there? I want you to look back with me. I, uh, th- this is interesting to me. I'd never really noticed this until I read this passage. Now, look what Elijah says in verse number 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. Now, I've heard people preach on that I don't know how many times in my life. And this is the great decision that he gives them. He says, all right, if God's God, then let Him be God. And if Baal's God, then let Baal be God. But we can't hang in the middle here. We need to get off the fence and we need to make a decision. Now, I want you to notice what happened. Look at the next phrase. The Bible says, and the people answered Him not a word. I think the apathy that they displayed. Now, you would think... Here is the lone prophet of God. Now, we know we know that God had others that had not bowed the knee to Baal. But as far as Israel knows, as they're gathered here on this mountain, this is the mouthpiece of God. This is, this is a prophet of Jehovah. And on the other side are 450 prophets of Baal. That's what we call crisis point. You know, that's what a crisis is. A crisis is a decision point. And a decision's got to be made. And he looks at him and he says, it's this simple. If God's real, if Jehovah's the God of the universe, then you need to serve Him. You need to follow Him. But if Baal is the God of the universe, then you need to serve Him. You need to follow Him. And they couldn't even be moved to make a decision. Me and Brother Paul were talking this morning in Sunday school, and we are talking about some of the things that are intrinsic to pastoring. I, I don't know. I may get in trouble saying what I'm about to say, but we are talking about some of the things that are involved in pastoring. He was talking about the challenges that he imagines a pastor might have. You know, one of the greatest challenges as a pastor is to get up and preach a message. And you don't ever try to preach at people. I, I, I don't go in for this business of preachers preaching at people. You just need to preach to people. Amen? But there's people that you know need to move. You know it because you pray for them. You know it because you love them. You know it because you counsel them. And the altar call comes and the time to do business with God comes... And the people answer not a word. Let me tell you something. I think we need an altar because only prayer can move the unmovable. I think we need an altar because only prayer can light a fire in us to live and to serve God. 
I think we need an altar because of the apathetic state of society that we live in. You know, the main problem is not that people hate God, it's that they just don't care. It's not that they hate God, it's that they just don't care. They care more about a trip to the lake or a trip to the golf course. They care more uh, about a vacation or they, they care more about a job or they care more uh, about whatever it might be. Any and everything is enough of a distraction to keep us on the fence and in the middle. Just answered not a word. I think the apathy of the people. But then I think probably one of the reasons there was an altar needed was because of the assault of the priests. It's interesting that the Bible says Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord. Now, there's two understandings you could have of this passage, and I'll tell you what some people think, and then I'll tell you what's right. Amen. Uh, some people are under the impression that there was only one altar built, and Elijah had to repair it because the priests had kicked it over. But that's not so. If you study, you know what you find? You find that there had, for many, many hundreds of years, been an altar on Mount Carmel. This is Elijah's time. Some people believe that it dated back even as far as, uh, as King Saul, or maybe even older than that. No temple, no tabernacle, just an altar up there, barren and alone by itself. It had been a place when high places and groves had been permitted, when the tabernacle had not yet been established, where people had gone and worshipped and met with God. And through the years, it had fallen into disrepair. And then after... Let me tell you something... If you don't care about something, it won't be long before somebody comes and kicks it over. We're learning that about society, right? We just, you know, we took for granted everybody knew that marriage was between a man and a woman, right? And then somebody come come around and kicked it over. I, we just took for granted that the government couldn't make you buy something. I mean, how uh, how, how atrocious uh, of an overreach of... Go- and then they came over and just kicked it over. You see, if you don't care about something, it won't be long before somebody comes and kicks it over. If you don't care about your family altar, it won't be long before something comes along and kicks it over. Uh, If you don't care much uh, about your marriage, it won't be long before somebody comes over and kicks it over. And so they just quit using it. They just quit using it. Ahab comes into power and ascends the throne. And Ahab is the most wicked man that ever sat on the throne of, of Israel. And he marries in with Jezebel who brings Baal worship into Israel. And pretty soon there is a full onslaught against the worship of Jehovah in that land. Obadiah made this statement earlier in chapter 18. He said that, uh, that uh, Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets, they were trying to seek you out. And he said, I went and took the prophets that were left, men that feared Jehovah, and I hid them in a cave because their lives were threatened. Let me tell you something. We better get a hold of God because this thing's getting serious. Am I right? Marriage is falling to pieces, man. I'm talking church kids hooked up on drugs. I'm talking about lives being destroyed. I'm talking about people that have grown up, uh, nursed and weaned on the Word of God that are going out and denying the very God that they were raised to believe in. This thing's serious. I mean, it's zero hour. This is not time for games anymore. It's not midnight. It's almost daylight. We better get serious about this thing because there's an all-out assault on the things of God. If you claim the name of Christ, you're the enemy today. Understand that. We live in a day where he that killeth you thinketh that he doeth God a service. And things are getting real. We need an altar for that reason. We need an altar for that reason. 
So we see this altar presented before us. I'm not going to go through all of the things that the, the prophets of Baal did. You can read it right there before your eyes. But I want to notice a few things about this altar. And I'm going to give them to you real quick and then I'll sit down and hush. I want to say, first off, we see the building of this altar. It had to be built before it could be burnt. Let me tell you something. Your altar has to be built before it'll ever burn. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes discipline. It takes determination. If you thought you were going to coast through this thing, somebody told you wrong. It's going to take effort. We see it because of the condition of it. It just hadn't been used. just hadn't been used. You don't believe how many people tell me time and time again, I used to pray. I used to pray. How many people say, I used to have a time when I'd get up in the morning or maybe before I'd go to bed at night and I'd sit down with my Bible and I'd read the Word of God and I'd pray and I did it for years. And then one day I just stopped. Just stopped. Listen, you don't, you don't have to dive off the cliff for your life to go to the dogs. You just quit praying and that'll be enough. You'll dry up on the vine. You'll be so angry. You'll be so miserable. You'll hate God and the things of God and the people of God and the house of God and the Word of God. Let me tell you something. Nobody, you can't be bitter and be praying. Right? You can't do that. I think the condition of it was it was just simply in, in disrepair. Think about also the construction of it. Elijah goes and he gathers 12 stones. We know that these stones are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And with the help of the people, he builds it. This is probably a, a laborsome job, don't you imagine? If it was big enough that it was about four cubits by four cubits, these aren't pebbles. It took work. It took effort. It took time. To make it happen. Uh, Listen, don't think that you're just going to be able to try for a split second and then all of a sudden every one of your problems is going to be fixed. Don't think that you're going to be able for just a moment to try to be a person of prayer and all of a sudden everything's... It's going to be a battle. That's what they were on that mountain for, was for a showdown, for a battle. It took work. We see the construction of it. But then I want you to notice the conducting of it. Uh, Elijah... He digs a trench round about it, and then the Bible says that he laid the wood in order, and he laid the sacrifice in order, and he got everything prepared. You see, things had to be in order before the fire would fall. They had to be in order. Let me tell you something. You won't have the power of God in your life if sin is in your life. Don't wonder why things are a mess if there's sin in your life. I kind of like what uh, the Lord told Joshua. You remember when Achan had sinned and he had taken of the Babylonian garment and the wedge of silver and the gold there at Jericho. And, and, you know, Joshua does what most of us would have done. Joshua goes and falls on his face before the Lord and says, Lord, what is happening? We were slain by the men of Ai, such a small army. The sinners, the heathens, they're going to begin to blaspheme your name. Did you lead us out here just to leave us in the desert and allow us to perish? And you know what the Lord says? Now, this is, get ready, because this, this, is, this is what they call paraphrasing, okay? The Lord basically says, get up and shut up, Joshua. It's basically what He says. He says, arise, get thee up. There's sin in the camp. It says, Joshua, don't wonder what's wrong. You know what's wrong. Someone has sinned, and it must be dealt with. God even helped them to zero down what that sin was. And they go tribe, family, tribe by tribe, family by family, until they come down to Achan. And God reveals that he has sin in his life. 
Let me tell you something. If you have sin in your life, don't wonder that things aren't going well. There's a reason things aren't going well. If you've got sin in your life, don't expect them to go well. That's not to say that every problem we have is the result of some kind of hidden sin that we have. But if you've got hidden sin, don't wonder about the problems. See, everything had to be in order. We see the building of this altar, but then notice the bathing of this altar. This is interesting. You don't find this anywhere else in the Word of God other than this one instance. It wasn't done out of ceremony, but it was done distinct and specific for this situation. The Bible says that he dug a trench round about it. And after he dug the trench, he sent men down to go get barrels of water. And twelve barrels of water they poured over the top of this sacrifice and then filled up the trench that was around it. That's strange, isn't it? What was the reason behind this? Well, I want you to stop and think about this. Think, number one, about what it prevented. It prevented some things happening, didn't it? If you have ever tried to start a fire with wet wood, then you know that wet wood is not very conducive to starting a fire, right? Amen? What was it preventing? It was preventing an accidental fire. It was preventing it happening out of coincidence or happenstance. You see, God had it structured in such a way that if it was going to be done, He was going to have to do it. We see what it prevented, but notice what it pictured. That has to be a picture, am I right? Your Bible's full of pictures, and it is a picture. Water in the Word of God pictures one of two things, typically. Now, if it's a large body of water, like a sea, sometimes it will picture a multitude of people. But water, in and of itself, uh, typically represents one of two things. It either represents the Word of God when it cleanses, or it represents the Spirit of God when it's used to nourish a person that's thirsty, when it's used to drink. But what was this water picturesque of? Well, we find this truth, that the water was there so that it couldn't be done through human means. It had to be done through divine means. Can I share a verse with you from the book of Zechariah? And I understand that the book of Zechariah, this is talking about the, the millennial kingdom and talking about the Lord returning in power and in glory and, and setting up Zerubbabel. He's a picture. I understand that. But there's a verse that's used, a phrase that's used, I believe it's in chapter number 7, where the Bible says, "...not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord." That gives us the modus operandi of how God does things. He doesn't do it through human ingenuity. He doesn't do it through brute force. He doesn't do it through cunning and and man's wisdom. He does it through the effectual working and power of the Spirit of God. You see, the bathing of this altar represented the bathing of the Spirit of God over this portion of this land. Let me tell you something. You know what you need once you set up an altar, once you set up a time that you meet with God? In a place that you meet with God, once you get your Bible, once you determine you're going to pray, you know what you need? You need to surrender to the Spirit of God and let Him have His will and His way in that time. You say, oh, preacher, that sounds spooky. Don't let it spook you because uh, the Bible says that he that knoweth the uh, mind of the Spirit, uh, the Spirit knoweth the mind of... Let me, I'm going to get it right here in a second, amen? He that searcheth the hearts knoweth the mind of the Spirit. That tells me that the will of the Spirit of God and the will of God the Father are harmonious one with another. To surrender to the Spirit of God is to surrender to the will of God. And it has to be bathed with the leading of the Spirit of God. 
we all have dry times in our prayer closet. If you don't have dry times in your prayer closet, you probably aren't going in there except when you feel like it. We all have dry times in the prayer closet. But let me tell you something. The chief endeavor that we ought to seek to as we go to the Lord in prayer is to pray in the Spirit. You say, what's praying in the Spirit? Well, it's not a bunch of gibberish. It's not a bunch of nonsense. But it's praying, seeking the will of God for our lives and not our will. It's praying, seeking for the leading of the Spirit of God. When a preacher gets up and preaches, he ought to preach in the Holy Ghost. Don't you believe that? He ought to preach with a touch of God on his life. He's not up there spouting off nonsense, nor is he up there possessed like some kind of zombie. But rather, he's found the mind of God, and he's relating it to the people. By the same token, to pray in the Spirit of God is to seek the mind of God on things, and to pray for God's will, not for your own will. I see what it prevented, and I see what it pictured, but what did it prove? Well, it proved when the fire fell that it was God. It was God. You know why God orders things through prayer? Is because it's just proof positive that it's God that's done it, not mankind. God accomplishes His work through preaching and through prayer. There was a famous church uh, builder, I guess that's what you'd call him. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but he was very purpose-driven. I remember that. And uh, he made the statement, he said, you just can't build a church on preaching and praying anymore. Let me tell you something, if you build it on anything other than preaching and praying, you didn't build a church. You may have built a social club, you may have built a a, a moose lodge, you may have built a company, but if you didn't build it through preaching and praying, you didn't build a church. Because God had chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe on His name. That's how it's done. Let me tell you something, if God don't do this thing, it won't get done. Because I can't do it, and you can't do it. I can't convict a sinner. You can't either. But God can. Listen, I can't grip people's hearts. More and more I'm coming to terms with that in my heart and in my life. That I can't... I'm not a motivator. I have an uncanny ability to bring out laziness in people. God's got to do it. I can't do it. I can't motivate you and you can't motivate me. God's got to do it. The altar has to be there. That's the only way. But when the fire fell, they knew it wasn't an accident. When the fire fell, they knew it wasn't just trickery and magic. They knew they had heard from heaven. We see the bathing of this altar, but we see the burning of this altar. The fire fell from heaven, and what did it do? Well, first off, it consumed the drenched altar. And you know, that's what happens when God gets in something. He consumes it. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. If God ever gets a hold of you, there won't be anything left but what belongs to God. That's what happens. That's what a fire is for, right? It refines, it purifies, it burns away the dross and the impurities and leaves only that which is valuable and precious and pure. Listen, and I'm not trying to be ugly, but you want me to speak truth, right? what you wanted in a pastor. You want me to speak truth. Well, the truth is this. Don't tell me that God's got control if sin is present. Now, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But when we're living in sin, we're not living in the will of God. Am I right? We're not living in the will of God when we're living in sin. See, when God gets a hold of something, He takes control of it. When the fire came, it didn't just light a little glow. It consumed everything. The Bible says it even licked up the water that was on the ground. 
there was nothing left that God hadn't took control of. We see that it consumed the drenched sacrifice, but we notice that it convinced the doubters, didn't it? Convinced the doubters. It did what nothing else could do. I don't know what things were like in Israel during that three and a half years. I know it was dry. I know that no rain fell. But I don't know. There's always a religious crowd. And there was probably a religious crowd that was laboring and trying to work to to build moral interest in society. But it got everyone's attention when the fire fell. Let me tell you, it was said of John Wesley that they asked him one time uh, how he drew such crowds. He said, I merely set myself on fire and the world comes to watch me burn. Far too long we've lived with half measures. One foot in, one foot out. Not on fire, in fact, barely glowing. What you might call lukewarm. And that won't get it done. That won't get it done. You could do more for the cause of Christ if you'd just burn in your workplace. If you'd just burn amongst your family. If you'd just glow and smolder with the presence of God. If you'd just determine that everything that you do, God's going to be in it, and it's going to be about God, and it's going to be a testimony of God you'd find it convince those around you. I remember hearing a preacher, and I've told this story before, but I remember hearing a preacher one time, he was telling a story about when he was 19 years old, and he took a bus trip, uh, about a 10, 12-hour bus trip, and uh, some poor soul got placed beside him. And uh, he made his mind up that he was going to witness to him the whole time. And for hours and hours and hours, he witnessed to this man. When they came to the end of the trip, that man looked at this young preacher and said this, said, son, I don't believe what you are telling me. But I do believe that you believe what you're telling me. I mean, we can't make people believe, but we can make them believe that we believe. We can make it clear to them that this isn't a game. This is life. This is the real deal. This is legit. We find that it convinced the doubters. We find that it condemned the deceivers. See, it separated the herd. Israel didn't wonder anymore who the servants of the true God were. They knew that Elijah was a man of God. They knew that the 450 prophets of Baal, they were charlatans and deceivers. Uh, That'll draw the battle lines pretty quick. If we just get the presence and power of God, we won't have to worry about that other crowd. People will be able to look and see the difference. Uh, You know, in dealing with young people, when I was a youth pastor, I found this out. You've heard this before, but there's two, two groups that you cannot fool. Dogs and kids, right? You've heard that? I know you have. Let me tell you something. Kids know whether it's real. They know. They got no, they, they got no politeness. They got no manners. They're like little animals. <laughs> they know. They know whether it's real or not. They know whether you're playing games. Let me tell you something. The whole rest of your family and church family, everybody, they may smile and be polite and shake your hand and, and keep up your facade if you'll keep up their facade. But kids, they got no motive to do that. They're just looking for something real. They're looking for something that is genuine, authentic. Listen, they're they're not looking for smoke and mirrors. They're looking for fire from heaven. And we'll find that this crowd that we seem to lose out to all the time, right? The world, the liberal crowd, the contemporary crowd, we won't have to fight them so much if we just get the power of God. People can see the difference. People can see the difference. Then notice finally what it did, and I'm done. I told you I was going to be quick, and it felt quick, didn't it? We see it concluded the drought. Concluded the drought. You know what happened after the altar was built? It rained again. 
It won't rain till the altar is built. Let me tell you something. You won't have that sweet presence of God in your life. I understand He'll never leave us nor forsake us, but you also understand that there's a difference between Him not forsaking us and Him fellowshipping with us. And if you want that sweet time of fellowship, there'll have to be an altar. One thing, my father-in-law, he, uh, I, I don't listen to him most of the time, but every once in a while he'll say something that sticks with me. He was my Bible teacher in, in school, which is, I, I, it took years to undo all the bad doctrine he taught me. But I, I remember this. I remember him saying that everywhere that Abraham went, he built an altar. It's the first thing he did. He built an altar. And you follow his life. It's true. He didn't just make it up. It's true. Everywhere you go, Abraham built an altar. Because he understood that beyond any... Before he built a house, he built an altar. Because he knew he couldn't get the house built if the altar wasn't there. But before he went and, and got livestock, he built an altar. Because he knew he couldn't protect his livestock without the altar. Let me tell you something. Some of you, you're waiting for everything to get right until you serve God. But everything ain't going to get right until you do serve God. You're waiting for everything to work out, everything to be easy. But it's not going to be easy. You've got to make your mind up. And let me tell you something. Time is slipping away. You're going to wake up one day and it's going to have been 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And all that time will be gone. If you don't believe me, ask some of the people in this room. They'll tell you how quick time just goes. Just goes. 62 years, man. Where did 62 years go? You don't feel that old. I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying don't feel like 62 years, does it? It just goes. You've got to make your mind up today. How long halts ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then serve Him. If Baal be God, then serve Him. You see, until the altar is built, it won't happen. And things aren't going to work out till the altar is built. You've got to make your mind up today. You say, well, I don't know, preacher. Maybe next week. Oh, the next week it'll be like last week. And the week after that will be like the week before that. No, today's the day. Today's the day that you have to make your mind up. Not because I'm making you, not because anybody's making you, but because if you won't do it in the moment, then you won't do it at all. Today's the day. And I wonder what kind of condition the altar is in your life right now. I wonder if it needs to be rebuilt.